Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. Today, I can barely contain my excitement because I'm chatting to someone that I absolutely adore, Dave Grohl. I think that there's some adventure in in not knowing what comes next and having the confidence to discover that in order to keep life entertaining or to stay alive I need to do things that that I don't know how to do. Dave is the wildly successful and brilliantly funny frontman of the Foo Fighters of course he used to be Nirvana's drummer too but you know that. Last week he was in London for a one-off performance at the Savoy Theatre telling some tales from his new book The Storyteller and playing some music. Actually, I think the joy of it for him was that even he wasn't entirely sure what would happen on the night. He was just going to throw himself in at the deep end and see what magic he could create. Given how chilled out he was about the whole thing, he very kindly took the time to sit down with me in his hotel suite beforehand to recount some of the stories that have made up this incredibly energetic beautiful, exciting life. Oh, he really is just the most fantastic storyteller. His use of language is just gorgeous. But a quick warning, that does, of course, include a fair amount of sweary language too, which I love him for. So now's probably a good time to pop on your headphones if you haven't already, if you are in public or maybe around young people. But just enjoy it. Just love every second. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. All right, I can't wait to do this. Let's relive it. Here's the show. my way through the corridors of a posh London hotel with weird fingerprint carpet and peach walls, um, looking for a certain suite of someone that I am so excited to interview. I feel terrified slash so excited. I don't know why terrified, but probably because I just want it to go well. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dave Grohl, who I am a huge fan of. I've interviewed him before and he's just been a joy to talk to. So I am literally bubbling with excitement. It's literally like Christmas. So I'm going to go and knock on the sweet door now and go and say hi to Dave. Hello, Dave. Hi. Are you good? Yes. I love your book so much. You read it? I read every page. I cried twice with joy, not oh, sadness. Good. Two joyful tearfuls. Yeah. Um, and it's just packed with the best stories ever. The storyteller. Um, storytelling is so important and so underrated. And the thing that I found was when I was reading the book, I consciously didn't play it safe in my life because I kept thinking, 
that's not a story. There's no story there. Right. You've got to take risks. You do. Uh, first of all, both of my parents were brilliant writers. So my mother was a public school teacher. She was a creative writing teacher and also a public speaking teacher. She was a forensics coach and a debate coach. And so she is a brilliant woman. My father was a, a speechwriter and a journalist. So like not only the spoken word, but written word was always in our family. It was, it was kind of respected in a way. I was a terrible student. I'm a high school dropout. So I don't have any formal training to write, but growing up in my household, whether it was having articulation drills at dinner. Wow, what does that involve? That means uh, my mother would give you a subject and you'd have to talk about it for three or four minutes without breaking speech. Wow. Without saying um or like or hmm. So you you paid attention to not only what you were saying, but the cadence of how you were speaking. And then my father and I, once we started using email, we would go back and forth. We had this email correspondence where he would send me notes from home. I would send him notes from the road. And um, it was great because after a while, he's he was such a brilliant writer. He said, you're becoming a great writer, David. He said, your writing has punch and punch is power. And that was like my life's greatest validation. At the yeah. Time. Yeah. So I really enjoyed writing and uh, doing it the way that I did it in the short story format. I wasn't writing some like chronological bio. I was just telling these stories because that's all we did in my family my entire mm. life was tell stories. But it's really underrated. I think. We just don't value storytelling. And it's one of the most beautiful things, how stories pass through families. And I mean, certainly this podcast is just storytelling. And the amount I've learned over the last however many episodes we've done, literally from stories, it's the most beautiful thing. And I love how you start the book talking about the fact that you look in the mirror and you sort of forget that you've aged. And I really, that resonated because I mentally sometimes feel like 18 and I sort of worry is that okay I'm in my 40s I need to sort of feel grown up now but maybe it's a it's a good thing it keeps you curious it keeps you excited about life well I think first of all it's when I look in the mirror that I am reminded how old I am (laughs) like that's what happens when I'm if I spend the day just running around I feel like I'm 27 years old and then I take one look I'm like Jesus fucking Christ (laughs) what happened um No, I think, you know, the most important thing is like, is the life or the youth that you feel within you. And, um, and I think there is something to growing old gracefully. And I don't think that has to do with physicality. I think that has to do with your spirit. So, you know, there was this funny instance at a benefit concert where I was surrounded by all of these legendary rock stars who were all aging and, I was in a room with one that was trying their best to like fend off the aging process. Mm. And then another who had totally embraced it and just looked like an old fucking hot rod. You know, (laughs) I think in the book I say one looks like an old wall with too many layers of paint and the other one looked like a vintage burnout hot rod. Mm. And it was in that moment that I realized like, oh yeah, right. So I'm, I think I'm that guy. Yeah. And if, when I grow up, that's like, I want to be that guy. Eventually, mm. way down the line. <laughs> you know, I'm heading fully towards witch. Like I'm happy with that. I'm going witch. There's nothing wrong with being a witch. I'm really cool with it. I might be a witch. Yeah. You never it's know. a great look. It's a great yeah. look. Um, the book is just full of these seminal moments or very important people in your life. And 
one of the most important moments seems to be that gig that you went to, the first sort of punk gig you went to to see a band called Naked Raygun, who are a local band to you. And that was this sort of eureka moment, which was phenomenal to read about because we've all, as music lovers, sort of been to gigs and felt that power and, oh my God, something's changing. But you'll just walk away and go, cool. But for you, this was then, this is my life's mission. That was your focus from that second onwards. Well, so when I was young, I bought rock and roll records, Beatles records and Kiss records and Rush records and Zeppelin records and ACDC. And I had those posters on my wall. And, you know, looking at those posters, there were like lasers and dragons and explosions and makeup and stage lights. And so I kind of imagined that's what rock and roll was. And in a way, it seemed unattainable. It was like, oh, well, that's a whole other world. That's not human. That's some other thing. And, uh, and I had never seen a live band. And I went to that punk rock club and I saw this band and there were no lights and no lasers and no dragons. There were like four dudes on stage and they knew four chords and it was right in your face. And the singer was on top of my head and there was spit and blood and puke and shit everywhere. And then <laughs> it was so fucking loud. I was just like, oh my, this is rock and roll. Like this is, I think is what it's is all it. about. And the fact that I was like, I know those four chords. Look, I, I I can play this song. That's what inspired me the most. And it was sort of that, you know, the it was the human element and the relatability that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this too. For no other reason than just to do it. I mean, this band I didn't think was going to become the biggest band in the world. I never thought I would be in the biggest band in the world. I just wanted to play rock and roll with my friends. And um, I still do. Yeah. And, and there's that, this is one of the tearful moments for me was, Actually, there were three tearful moments. The end of the book where you're playing at Wrigley's Fields <laughs> and you realise you're opposite that venue, the Cubby Bear, where you'd seen that first gig. Mm-hmm. And it was like this moment of you're sort of seeing like the acorn under the oak tree. You're getting the full thing of like that was the beginning and now here you are with the Foo Fighters playing to tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. Well, this is one of the cool things is that I didn't even really make that deep of a correlation until I started writing. And I realised, oh, it's just a crosswalk away. Yeah, And so... What began in that little punk rock club was only a crosswalk away from what we, what I know now. Mm. And I made my way across that crosswalk with all of these different people in the book. So, spoiler alert, like that's, you know, <laughs> that's sorry. My I just, fault. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, it, in writing, it was those, I'd have those moments where I'd, I'd just have these realizations, yeah. which was great because I don't really spend too much time looking back. I mean, I'm constantly reminded of it when I'm doing interviews and things like that. Anniversaries, you know, they come up and I get asked about the past. But I'm more concerned with like, oh, my God, I have to do a one-man show at the Savoy tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just me sitting with a book playing a guitar. It's an involved production yeah. that I wrote five days ago and I have to memorize. Oh, wow. Okay. So, it's that, so I'm just trying to get through like yeah. this afternoon and then get to the next day, get yeah. to the next day. Um so, yeah. So in writing the book, it was like, you know, I got to look back on a lot of things that mm. I hadn't really thought about in a long time. But also to honor the fact that like, you manifested all of that. You had this vision at that gig and then you were like, I'm going to do that, which you did, which yeah. is very rare, very unusual situation to find yourself in manifesting that exact dream. And 
it was amazing how sort of intuitive you were as a kid because you built a little altar and you didn't really know what you were doing with that, but it felt that well, felt natural Well, that's what I'm talking about, being a witch, man. I'm not yeah, sure if I'm yeah, one or not. <laughs> I, well, I mean, the craziest thing, and this is true, that there's a story in the book about this girl that broke my heart in yeah. seventh grade. Sandy. I love that story. Sandy, man. It's the first week of school. I saw her. She's the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I was like, I must have Sandy. <laughs> so I asked her to be my girlfriend. We like held hands and like kissed by the bus for like about a week and a half. And then she was like, you know, I'm new here and I don't want to get tied down. This is seventh grade. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And she totally just destroyed. I was devastated. And I had this dream that night that I was on stage in a rock band doing a guitar solo at the lip of the stage, sold out packed arena of adoring fans, just wah. And I look down and I see her in the front row, crying her eyes out, just consumed with regret. So much regret. She dumped me. (laughs) She should have just held on. And uh, 30 years later, I play the hometown gig and I'm fucking on stage playing a lead to an arena of adoring fans. And I look down and she was right there. Just like in my dream, except she was not crying. <laughs> or full of regret, no, She was looking at Just me, she was like, you're such a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. But it's so wonderful that you, and you, you had this kind of mantra that you wrote in the book, which sort of plays into this law of attraction. And you say, uh, what you think you become, what you feel you attract, what you imagine you create, which is, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast with Rhonda Byrne, who wrote The Secret, and that amazing notion of being in that alignment and and then it coming into your life. But equally, we've probably all had times where we've been on the opposite side of the coin, where we've been stuck in a negative cycle and bad shit's coming our way. Have you found that? Do you slip into that? Or are you quite good at getting yourself back into the sort of positive mindset? Well, you know, it's funny. I knew nothing about The Secret or the Law of Attraction or Manifestation. Until I started writing the book. Mm. Someone was like, oh, that's the law of attraction. I'm like, what's that? They're like, oh, it's that Oprah book secret or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. And so I started kind of researching it. I'm like, oh, yeah. But no, there was this, there was a punk rock band from Washington, D.C. called the Bad Brains. And their whole thing was sort of based on what they called PMA, which is a positive mental attitude. And it, there was a writer who sort of came up with the concept years ago. And the whole thing was, if you can perceive it, you can achieve it. And I honestly felt that way when I was a kid. Like, you know, growing up with a, your mother's a public school teacher trying to support two kids. Like, we I, we didn't have anything. Like, we didn't have – we barely had money to keep the heat on or the phone on. But we were happy. And so I, th- I truly thought I could do anything. I – sort of still feel that way but I really felt like I could do anything as long as I did it my way I'd figure it out and I could do it so I I I've I've always had that sort of energy and I do believe that if you put the thought or that energy out there there is some sort of return like that seance thing I had when I was 17 in my carport in my like garage or whatever I thought like, okay, I'm, I need to become a musician. Like I need to become, I need that magical thing that those other guys have. Mm. So I literally made an altar and sat down in front of it and prayed to the universe that it would happen. And it happened. And there's part of me that sometimes I'm like, did I fucking sell my soul to the devil? Like, what did I do that? No, I think you were just so in alignment with it. And yeah. You know, if there's no doubt, you don't allow room for it, you just keep going. And I think probably the only thing that stops us from manifesting what we want is fear. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, it's almost, 
uh, with children, I, they probably feel the same in that there's no, there's no restriction to imagination yeah. and you can kind of do anything you put your mind to. It's as you grow older in life that you start to like become callous in this way that, you know, you, you just imagine that's, that something isn't uh, possible. And I, I have this theory that there's two types of people in the world. The type of person that when presented with an idea or a challenge, they say, okay, let's figure that out. Then there's the other type that immediately thinks of all the reasons why it yeah. can't be done. And I'm, of course, you know, the, the type that just wants to like figure it out. Let's yeah. do it. Let's figure it out. And it doesn't really matter what it is. I, I really, I'm, I'm fucking confident or cocky enough that <laughs> I feel like, okay, give it to me. I'll figure it out and do it. But yeah, because it's interesting. You put, when you were having that moment at Wrigley's Field, but you were like, wow, I was across the street as a kid. Yeah. And and now you're doing what you're doing. You said, how did I get here? Like, perhaps was it because I, I had the audacity to have self-belief? But it's so weird that we think it's audacious to believe in ourselves. Like, that's a strange concept. That well, we made there's that audacious. so many things in life that make you feel otherwise, yeah. you know, um, that whether it's, you know, self-esteem or self-image or the confidence to <clears throat> to try something that you don't know you'll be able to do. Um my mother, ages ago, I was talking to her about something. She grew up in rural Ohio, kind of like, not a big farm, but kind of like a little tiny farm thing in the 50s. And I remember asking her about peer pressure in her community. And she said, uh, she said, you know, I never compared myself to other people. I always felt like I was just my own person. And that was huge to me because no one says that. I mean, they might now, but in the 50s, absolutely no. not. And so um, I've always kind of felt the same way. And, uh, you know, it's empowering to feel that way. I tell my daughters that, you know. I, when Violet was eight or nine years old, she's 15 now, she came to me and she said, um, hey, Dad, I want to shave my head. I said, really? How's that? I thought, I thought she was trying to grow it out. I'm like, I thought you were trying to grow it out. She goes, well, I was, but then I realized that all the other kids in school have long hair, and I'm not like them. I'm different from them. I was like, give me the clippers. Let's go. <laughs> Let's Come do on. it. Let's shave Let's it right now. It. Let's go. That's awesome. Yeah. The, I think the only time in the book where you could see that you had that moment of, I feel a bit scared, was when Scream, that first punk band you were playing with, said, come join, come tour. And you said you actually felt a bit scared that you ha you'd have to grow up and like be an adult and go and do something. Well, but uh, you changed your mind. <laughs> okay. uh, no, I mean, yeah, I've, you know, I've hit a few crossroads in my life. And it's in those moments where you have to make that decision. And that can be scary because... You know, in making any decision, you have to commit to the consequence of that decision. So um, that was one. I mean, at that time, I was like 17 or 18 years old. And I realized that if I were to join this band, it would sort of set my life in a direction that uh, would take me away from the comfort of home and my friends and the security of that. And... Uh, you know, my mother almost encouraged me, though she was a high school teacher and I was dropping out of high school, the fucking one that she taught at. Wow. Um, she's like, no, you, you should do that. And you better be good, though. Like, you've got to be good if you're going to do this. And it was, you know, it was really, it was inspiring. But um, that's happened more than a few times, you know, joining Scream and then leaving Scream to join Nirvana. And then after Nirvana, 
starting the Foo Fighters. It's like you hit these points in your life where <clears throat> rather than just get sort of stuck in the quicksand of that moment, it, you sometimes have to do take drastic or extreme measures to get out of it. And um, I did. And do you reckon that is that you just have a strong intuition, like a good gut feeling? Because it seems like you know, those moments that you've mentioned and also when you were sort of playing with the idea of the Foo Fighters, but Tom Petty was like, hey, come join the band, come play. But you kind of knew that's an amazing offer, but this just feels right over here. Was that just all I usually steer myself towards things that I'm not entirely sure I can do. Why do you think that is? Because it's so much more fun. Right. There's no safety net. Why the fuck not? Life's too short to just sort of do the thing that you know how to do all the time. Yeah. Fuck that. Let's like <laughs> do something that we have no idea what's going to happen. Mm. That's kind of my thing. Like, you know, I knew that I could go play drums with Tom Petty. I didn't feel like I was the right person to do it, but I knew I could. I hadn't the slightest idea how to be the front man of a band. And that's why I did it. You know, same with leaving home at 18 years old. Or joining Nirvana, moving up with a bunch of strangers. And I had, there was just, like, it's kind of fun when there's no safety net. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I feel like I was a bigger risk taker when I was younger, for sure. And that led me to some amazing opportunities. And I still try and push myself now, but I am more sort of risk averse. But I think we all have our own little barometer of, that just feels like I've pushed it too far. Do you have that? Or are you just always, let's just go for it and free fall and see what happens? What was the part about pushing it too far? Like, do you have like a... Okay. (laughs) Uh, It depends. I guess it just depends. Yeah, on the situation. I mean, I do have like a healthy sense of consequence. Not that that makes me stop doing the things that I should not be doing. But, you know, like, I think that... um, I think that there's some adventure in, in not knowing what comes next and having the confidence to discover that. Um... You know, as you get older, of course, like it becomes more and more of a, a an issue of survival. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I surely wouldn't do half the shit I did fucking no, twenty five no. years ago. Like crazy stuff. Yeah. But you know, it's like, but I do know that in order to keep life entertaining or keep keep to stay alive, I need to do things that that I don't know how to do. And also, I guess like feeling willing to make mistakes because I feel like in society today everybody's so worried about making a mistake and what the what the outside world will say but we've we've got to do we've got to put ourselves in that position well to do you know that. I also tell my kids this like you know there's this there's there are really heavy ex- expectations on kids when they're young in school that if like some sort of early failure is going to dictate their life path and yeah. like some they could get a bad grade or they miss a day in school or whatever it is that you know as parents you of course you want to make sure that they they stick with their responsibilities and stuff but um but i try to explain to my kids like it's okay to make mistakes like mm. it just is you know it, it, nobody's perfect and uh i also have always felt like i'm just going to make a mistake and so i accept them when they happen you know it's like teaching myself to play music that in teaching myself to play guitar or drums or any of that shit I don't know what's right or wrong when I do that. So when I play and I and I and I make some sort of mistake, I sort of fall back on that. Like, oh well, what am I going to do? I have no clue what I'm doing. So expect more. Do you think you have to like yourself to do that? I I, I think you have to kind of have self compassion so that you don't beat yourself up about something when it goes wrong. Well, I think that makes you like yourself more. 
you know i yeah. think it you know i I, I'm, I can only speak for myself but um i you know it, a lot of it has to do with like self acceptance yeah. the good things and the bad things mm, most definitely life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com One of my favourite stories in the book, being a big Led Zeppelin fan, is you taking John Paul Jones to a medieval <laughs> feast for your birthday. <laughs> There's so many things that are so brilliantly wrong and right about that story. It's just the best. Pretty much all wrong. I can't I mean, imagine the happy it ending, happening. we started a band and we had a great you band for a while. You started one of the greatest bands ever. It was great. That was really fun. Yeah, that was just, that was my 40th birthday party. Mm. And of course, every time I have like a big birthday... I invite hundreds of people and we do something ridiculous and it's always really fun. And it's usually really juvenile, like medieval times, <laughs> which is that restaurant where you eat with your hands and people joust. <laughs> with um, a Led Zeppelin member. I mean, he was the only one there yeah. with an actual English accent. <laughs> so it was, you know. It's perfect. I thought if he could make it through that night, then we could He's have in. a band. He's in. He is it in. It was like a hazing. It's so good. and the, But there's so many beautiful moments like that and like, Going for dinner with ACDC and inviting a New Orleans jazz band to come into the restaurant to play. That, you know, you can see again, you're sort of manifesting these moments of kind of wildness and things that are the unexpected. And those things, you know, they don't happen by accident. You have to kind of like give space for these things to happen to, to create some excitement and some just spontaneous joy that seemed like that. That, yeah. that dinner was joy. Well, you know, the whole book... I'm basically writing from the perspective of someone that's having an out-of-body experience right. and watching all this shit happen to someone else. Because I can't believe it's, it's still, it's happening, you know? And I and when you, when you get to meet little Richard, mm, you're like, oh my God, this is insane. Like, this man invented rock and roll. And, I'm, and the only person I ever wanted to meet, and I said that in an interview. Someone says, who's the one person you want to meet? I said, Little Richard. That's it. And after I got to meet him, like, I don't give a fuck about anyone else. <laughs> You've done it. Give a shit. Sick. Absolutely. Done. Absolutely yeah. done. Give me presidents and rock stars. I don't care, man. I got it's to meet so Little good. Richard. But it's so funny hearing you say that because you're one of them. But it's Absolutely almost like you don't not. see it. No, of course not. But That's but what you I'm are. saying. Yeah. But I'm not. But you are. But I'm not. Okay. <laughs> So that's the thing is like I see, you know, as these things are happening to me, I'm just like, I, this is so weird. And I do. I think I even say in the book that like, you know, when moments like that happen, I'm convinced I'm like, oh, this is going to flash before my eyes as I'm dying. Like mm. in, on my deathbed as like life is flashing before your eyes. That This is what I'm going to see. I'm going to see this right now. And it happens like every day. I'm like, fuck, I'm going to see this too. Shit. This <laughs> it's going to be a really too. long Holy flash. shit. So, and I think about it sometimes. So it's like life is flashing before my eyes as it's happening. Mm. And um, it's just weird. It's I so think cool. it's weird. So it does. I mean, I think that some people might think like, oh, you're a fucking rock star. You could fucking do that. Yeah, people I, think you get used to it. Like that's just your normal. Like, having totally dinner with weird. ACDC is so it's normal. So, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. I get to see ACDC like in the flesh. Yeah. Dance, swing dancing with them to a jazz band. I'm like, did I just fucking take mushrooms? What's going on right now? <laughs> that's, I cried at that moment when Brian turned to you and said, I'm really fucking happy. <laughs> it's true. I cried because you could feel the euphoria. Like, what a beautiful moment. I don't expect him to say that. That's a gorgeous Listen, thing. Listen, Life should be filled with these moments where you it. find joy, 
right? Yes. Okay. It's really serious. It's That's too all serious. I'm trying to fucking do here, man. Yes, I know. And it's a gorgeous thing because I think we all, I get very serious sometimes. I'm like, why am I being so serious? I want to cultivate more moments of joy. It's very, very important. And your book highlights that. I think, I'm not sure when I sort of realized this, but you know, when you're in the midst of a crisis, when you're deep in crisis, it's hard to see above it or outside of it. But you have to remind yourself of the big picture all the time. Like I really honestly believe it. Even in the depths of like the darkest fucking day, you have to remember the bigger picture. And I don't mean that year. I don't even mean your lifetime. I mean like the stars and the fucking universe. Yeah. And like you have to imagine some bigger picture in order to make yourself through any of those crises. And I deal with those every day. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was doing that last night when I get a sort of uh, cyclical insomnia where yeah. I have like these panic things. I've been having it for like two weeks again. I'm like, why is this back? So I've got a really busy week at work and I have to go to, I'm a tiny speck lying on a floating ball in space with moons and other planets. How bad could and, it be? Yeah. Like you show up and you feel like shit and yeah. you're too tired you and you have too many coffees yeah. and then you fucking go to the bar and have six whiskeys and you take yeah. three Advil and you're fucking, you'll make it. <laughs> exactly. You'll make your way through exactly. it. Yeah, you do have, but it's bigger picture stuff. You've got to do that. Absolutely. Has there ever been a moment where you haven't been able to, to get that perspective? Yes. I mean, I remember... After the Foo Fighters made our second record, like everyone was fucking quitting the band and yeah. I had nowhere to live and I was going through a divorce and I didn't have any fucking money and I was sleeping in my friend's back room in his house and his dog would piss on me every night. This fucking dog <laughs> named Dinky would come and fucking piss on my bed with nice. me in it every night. And I'm like, this is, oh my, I'm Hell. surrounded by fucking crisis. Mm. And I, I remember I had this journal that I was writing lyrics in. And I would list all of my problems. I thought if I think of all of these things at the same time, I'll just have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. I'll be committed. Um, so I would kind of list them. And I would only think about them one at a time and think like, okay, how am I going to fucking solve this problem? And I would sort of like go down the list and then kind of like just cross them off. Um if I were to think of all of those things at the same time, I would have lost my fucking mind. That's so I try not to do that. It. That's a really good way of doing it because it is. I think it's overwhelming. That's my for next book. My next book yes. is a self-help book. Please. Shit, you don't want on, that. On manifesting no and breaking down your problems. Oh my god. No, but you're doing it. You're living proof that you're doing it because it's not like you've just had this easy ride to get to where you're at. You've had huge hurdles and challenges and stuff that you've had to deal with, but you've yeah, stayed positive. Yeah, but that's positive. the fun part, man. Yeah. Like this is fucking boring. I'm kidding. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I was kidding. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> Laugh, everyone. Cue laughter. Um, no, that's no, I know like, what you mean. I mean, that's the thing. Is like you, when it's going well, it's it's whatever. fucking great. Yeah. It's all it's good, great. man. Yeah, like, but, but those bits. You know, are that's important. the thing. Is like back then when we're like surviving off of three corn dogs a day yeah. and fucking sleeping in the club or in a squat or things like that. Um, of course, when you're young, that seems a bit more exotic and adventurous. But as you grow older, you know, that I feel fortunate to have had those experiences because they set this foundation for me. So that now if I walk into a gig and there's like, like free beer, I'm like, there's fucking free beer here. You know what I mean? Like I still, for real. That's being grateful. Yeah. Just being grateful. I mean, because otherwise I would have, you know. 
But that's again rare. I would have been the manager of the Shakey's Pizza that I used to work at. <laughs> not that, just the pizza guy. But that, that attitude is rare, I think, when you're top of your game because there is a level of expectation that things will be as you want them to and things will go well. But I think gratitude is is seriously important. Huge. Yeah. It's huge. And I, uh, you know, I hope that most other uh, musicians and artists really do embrace that because it can also be fleeting. You know, I when when Nirvana first became popular, my dad was like, you know, this isn't going to last, right? Mm. I was like, no, of course not. Like, why would it? This is, I feel like I hit the fucking jackpot. Yeah. He was like, you got to treat every check you make like it's the last one you'll ever make. I'm like, of course. And then, um, you know, 10 years later, he's like, you know, this isn't going to last, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, I think you have to, you really have to like be grateful and feel fortunate for every day because it might be your last one. Yeah. I mean, that's the way, like when Foo Fighters go play gigs now, oh my fucking God, we're on fire. We're the best band we've ever been right Mm. now. And one of the reasons is when we hit the stage, it's like the first show we've ever played and maybe could be the last. And the audience is like, that might be the last one they see for a while. So it's just this fucking cathartic transcended explosion of just like yeah. I don't want to get off the stage well you sometimes after don't after three hours I know yeah. and I look at the audience and they're yawning I'm like okay <laughs> I saw like the O2 go. and I was like I've missed my cab there's last trains gone I know people I'm just like they get angry at us they fucking they get no, it's great it's the best I'm into it yeah I'm into it it's a beautiful thing yeah. and you know when you were talking about that when you were praying at your altar and you were hoping for this sort of intangible, mystic element to, to help you with this mission in life, do you think that plays into the moments where you're songwriting? Is there something else that's helping you sort of channel what you're creating? The, the right notes, the right lyrics. Is there something else at play? Uh, well, I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe. I mean, usually when you're inspired to write, it's coming from kind of a specific place, at least for me. So I, I, there's a bit more focus to it, I think, when we're doing that, making records and things. I don't know. That's a good question. I, didn't, I never thought of it that way. No, I mean, you know, the thing, when I talk about that intangible element, um, it has to do with feel and how each musician plays their instrument differently. So you could have a sheet of music and have three different musicians play that same piece and they'll play it three different ways because it's determined by a few things. One, your heart, uh, another, your hands. And as a drummer, feel is a really big deal um, because that becomes your signature. That's what people recognize when they hear the sound, whether it's the drummer of Led Zeppelin, the drummer of ACDC, Charlie Watts, Rest in Mm. Peace, Ringo Starr. It's like, if you can listen to... 20 seconds of that drummer and know who they are that to me means they've achieved like great success mm. because it's their feel and that's not something you could teach so you either fucking ask for, for the universe for it in some weird, weird seance or you just let it be and um yeah <laughs> what the fuck are we talking about right now <laughs> well look thank you the book is I'm not bullshitting you in any sense. It's one of the greatest books. It's so beautiful. The stories are phenomenal in it. I did not want it to end. I love, love, loved it. I think I'm going to write another one. Please. How many stories were on the cutting room floor? There must be so many that you. Well, that was the hardest part. It was like choosing what not to put in the book. It was like, oh my god. So, I I had already made this list of like 30 or 40 stories 
that I was going to write for this Instagram page thing that I yeah, started. Yeah, I follow it, yeah. And um, so I just handed that list over to the publisher and my editor. And she was like, okay, I want that one, that one, that one, and that one. Do you have three weeks? Go. Wow. And then I wait until like two days beforehand. I'm like, oh, shit. And just like blast it out. But um, yeah, I'd love to do it again. I was really sad when I hit send on the last story. I bet. Like I was actually kind of sad. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So lovely to relive it all. Well, thanks for writing it, and it's so lovely to see you and to talk, and thank you for being part of this today. Ugh, I don't know where to start. Being in Dave's orbit is a pretty special thing. I've been lucky enough to interview so many musicians over the years, but on every occasion that I've had the chance to sit with Dave and chat to him, either with the rest of the band or on his own, his charisma is huge. It's almost too big for him. It's like it fills a room and he's lovely to every single person in that room. The person that's just held the door open for him, the producer, the cameraman. Hey, Matt. He's just so lovely at all times and giving and generous and you walk away just thinking, bloody hell, I just wish I was his best mate. I just loved talking to him. Oh, thank you, Dave. I cannot tell you how much that meant. And also, his fantastic book, The Storyteller. I didn't want it to end. I was I was gutted when it ended. That book is out on the 5th of October. Another chat with a musician breaking ground in her own way will be with you very, very soon. Sooner than you might expect. So make sure you're following the podcast wherever it is that you like to listen to them so you don't miss it. Because it's a huge one. It's another biggie. Two huge ones for you. Until then, a massive thank you to Dave. I love you, Dave. To the producer, Anushka Tate, love you too, at Rethink Audio, and to you for sharing this experience with me. Oh yeah, I love you, and I'll see you soon.